Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. Lord, as I was talking with one guy this morning, this is a confused world. And there's a lot of confusing information. There's a lot of confusing information that's called Christian. And yet, you said your word is truth. And so, Lord, we want to stick close to it. And we want to hear from you. We want to be taught by your spirit through your word. And so, please, Lord, have your way with us and guide us and lead us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would turn to Hosea <clears throat> chapter 11. We have a habit uh, we're, of reading through the Scripture, Genesis to Revelation. Today we find ourselves in Hosea. And um, just as a roadmap for, for uh, if you've been here for a while, we usually go, do an Old Testament book and then a New Testament book or an Old Testament chunk and the New Testament chunk. Um, and I think what we're going to do, um, I made the executive decision uh, just this weekend. I, I think um, after Hosea, I'm going to go to Joel instead of going back to the New Testament. First of all, Joel's only three chapters. Second of all, the New Testament, on Wednesday nights, I said Nate is doing uh, Philemon this week, right? Which means next week he's doing what? Hebrews. Hebrews. So Hebrews would come after Philemon. And, and so if I go to the, um, uh, so the Hebrews is actually the jump where we would land because uh, we left off at Philemon. So anyway, I just don't want it to be too redundant for you. Is that fair? I don't want you guys to get bored for crying out loud. Uh, Nate and I being redundant because Nate and I think exactly alike and we talk exactly alike and we act exactly alike. Wow. <laughs> Nate and I were having lunch on Wednesday. It's funny. Nate and I were having lunch on Wednesday and we, and we kind of were talking about because if you were here on, two, on Wednesday, if you weren't here, I'll just tell you, we t he went through Titus, the whole book of Titus, and, and part of that's chapter 2, breaks down like the role of old men, old women, young men, young women, and all that. And, you know, we're kind of together, collectively, decided it's okay to identify as an old man. Let's go. Old men. Give it up for old men. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said about being an old guy and owning it right? And owning it honorably. And there's just so much richness and, and all that because of our society um, says otherwise. But I forget where I was going with that. It was completely tangential. So back to Hosea. <laughs> I do want to, um, so Lord willing today, we're going to read 11, 12, 13, 14. Settle down. Um, uh, and here's the reason, in all seriousness. Hosea, as we've been going through, is a picture of God's relationship with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And uh, Israel was like an adulterous bride. And Hosea was commanded by God as a prophet to marry a prostitute, which he did. And not only that, after he married her, she then committed adultery again. Um, 
And he literally, she wound up so uh, in such a pit, frankly, that she wound up in the slave market. And so Hosea went and literally bought her, redeemed her back out of the slave market. So what a picture. What a picture of God's grace. And so God, you know, did that for the, kind of explained that for the first three chapters. And then from chapters 4 through 10, basically God outlines, it's like a courtroom scene. We've talked about this before. It's like a courtroom scene where God is, is the uh, prosecuting attorney. He also happens to be the judge, but he's the prosecuting attorney. And like the nation of Israel is the defendant. And God is laying out uh, example after example after example. And I appreciate you bearing with me because, uh, you know, I was telling my family over the weekends, like, you know, I love teaching the word chapter by chapter, verse by verse. But, you know, there are times where you're like, how many different times can you say you guys are messed up? <laughs> and how many different metaphors can you use? Well, he used plenty, found plenty. And it's like, and, and the reason I want to do chapter, this chunk today in one piece, it's because it's, it's like as, as if God pronounces the, the, the judgment, but not the sentence, right? You know, in a criminal case, there's the, there's, the, there's the judgment part, guilty or innocent, and then after that, there's like, you know, what does that mean in terms of punishment, right? The sentencing. Well, it's like, in this case, God has, has laid out uh, a, an airtight case for the fact that the nation of Israel has been rebellious and has forsaken God. And then in the, the last four chapters, it's like God turns to himself, and we now see the heart of God through this, and God says, grace, through repentance. It's a call for repentance. And it leads up to chapter, uh, I'll just give you the roadmap. Chapter, one, chapter 11 is sort of God's reflection on his relationship with Israel. Chapter 12, lessons from the person of Jacob, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the guy whose name was changed Israel, in a sense, one of the, you know, the patriarchs. There are lessons from his life. And then chapter 13, he goes into the present state and kind of a reminder of God's character. And then cha finally, chapter 14 leads to a call for repentance. And I just want to kind of give you guys a little heads up as, we're, as maybe the Lord will be, be um, as the Lord will be teaching as I talk this morning, at the end, uh, we're going to have a, a time of opportunity that if you feel like you need to repent of something, um, it's not a time to make you feel like weird and awkward, but it's time of cleansing. And the truth is, repentance is the only means of cleansing. And God lays it all out. He makes everything available in our lives. Second Peter, I believe chapter 1 tells us he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's laid it all out. He's done all the work. When Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's done. But we have to repent and receive it. Okay? And so that's that. Uh, whether you consider that an encouragement or a warning, you be the judge. Uh, but anyway, that's sort of the roadmap that we're going all right, so I want you to see, we've, we've seen so much in the last several chapters from 4 to 10, we've seen the, the depravity of the nation of Israel, and today we begin to see the heart of God in, the, in response to that. And so he says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. As they called them, so they went from them. They sacrificed to the Baals and burned incense to carved images. <coughs> Excuse me. And I heard one guy describe this. 
this way. It's almost like if you're a parent, and this, this can be even difficult, if you're a parent of a prodigal child, it's almost like God is the parent of a prodigal child and he's flipping through like photo albums of, their inf- of the child's infancy, right? And if you've ever had a prodigal child and you flip through photo albums of their childhood or their, or their infancy, it's like, what is your, your heart melts. Your heart absolutely melts. And it's like, you're, you know, you're, the, the judgment that your flesh sometimes wants to uh, instill is like overtaken with compassion. And that's the heart of God. That's, that's kind of the stage he's setting here. And so, you know, he's saying, uh, in this case, the nation of Israel was, uh, came out of Egypt. Uh, they went to Egypt uh, as a family. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Jacob uh, and, his, and his family, his 12 sons and their, and their families, they were all up in the, in the land of Canaan. And, and you remember Joseph was hated by his brothers, wound up down in Egypt. Long story short, there's a famine. Um, and that's how God got all of Jacob's family down to Egypt. And there was about 70 of them-ish when they went. Um, and then by the time uh, generation, another generation or so comes, comes by and Pharaoh becomes, uh, the, there's a new Pharaoh that's, you know, oppresses the Jewish people and all that. By the time they come out, they're a nation of probably 3 million people, 2 to 3 million people. And so you go into Egypt as, as 70 people. You come out as 2 to 3 million people. You go in as a family. You come out as a nation. And so that was really the birth of the nation of Israel. He says, when, I, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. I called, I called my, my child, my family, my, my nation of Israel uh, out of Egypt. And obviously, and as we know, uh, you know, Matthew quotes this in a different context uh, regarding the prophecy of, of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, I believe. Then he goes on, he says, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with, ban- with, hand- I'm sorry, with bands of love, and I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. And so, again, we've talked about this before. We'll say it again. Ephraim, by this time, the kingdom of Israel is divided into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called uh, Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And the, the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom was Ephraim. So God uses this word Ephraim to describe the northern kingdom. And so uh, when you see Ephraim, it's not just the tribe of Ephraim. It's not just the person of Ephraim, but it's a reference to the northern kingdom of Israel. He said, you know, when they were young, I taught them how to walk. Like, again, reflecting on the childhood of a prodigal uh, child. It's like, I taught that kid how to walk. I reached down. I, I drew that kid with gentle cords, with, with bands of love. I stooped down and fed that child. And so God is just reflecting with this heart of a loving father, uh, just full of compassion, despite all of their wickedness. It says, he shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrians shall be his king. Because they, I want you to catch this, this is underlined in my Bible, they refused to repent. They refused to repent. And the sword shall slash in his cities, devour his districts, and consume them. Because of their own counsels, my people are bent on backsliding from me. Though they call to the Most High, none at all exalt him. And so, you know, he says they're bent on backsliding because they refuse to repent. And so God's going to have to discipline him just like, you know, any loving father would discipline a child that he loves. So he's not going to send them to Egypt. 
where they came from. He says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but the Assyrian shall be his king. The discipline's going to come in, for, in the form of the Assyrian nation. They're going to come in and, and conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. But I want you to notice this. Because they refused to repent. I want to say this as graciously as I can. And I know that everybody in the room has a different situation, but yours is unique to you. And somewhere along the line, we mess up. Fair enough? We don't need to make sh have a show of hands. Somewhere along the line, we mess up. That puts us all on the same level. But there's a difference. And the difference is, what do you do when you mess up? What do you do when you mess up? Because when you mess up, and let's say you get caught messing up, right? You feel bad, right? But you know, I believe it's Corinthians tells us, there's a, there's a sorrow that leads to death. Man, I feel bad. I feel bad. But there's a different sorrow that leads to life. It's called repentance. I feel bad, and therefore I'm going to repent. Does that make sense? And sometimes, frankly, it's hard to discern. Sometimes, frankly, it's hard to discern. But these guys, they refused to repent. We all sin. The choice is, what do we do in response to it once we're made aware of it? You know, there are two guys in the Old Testament that uh, I, my brain always goes to this, to these two examples. One was King Saul, one was King David, right? Remember the stories? King Saul, he's, he messed up. You say, well, what did he do? You say, well, what did he do? What did he do? I'll tell you what he did. Samuel told him, hey, God spoke to me, and he said, I want you to go take out the Amalekites. I want you to kill every last one of them. Don't let any, any man, woman, child, or animal breathe. To which we say, that's harsh. But God is God. There were reasons for that that are beyond our conversation today. So Saul, what did he do? He sort of obeyed. You ever sort of obeyed? Saul sort of obeyed. Kind of kept back the good ones, kept back the king, kept back, you know, some of the animals they were going to sacrifice to the Lord. And you know that famous line in Samuel's response, you know, obedience is better than sacrificing. How about you just do what God says? And if God tells you to sacrifice, sacrifice. God tells you to wipe them out, wipe them out, right? Don't do a religious game to try to cover up your disobedience. And that would speak to us today, I believe. Don't do a religious game to try to cover up obedience. Well, anyway, so, Sam, so Saul, he partially obeys. Samuel comes and he says, you're busted. I hear these cows making a lot of noise. Uh, you didn't do what I said. You know what Saul says? Oh, man, I'm so sorry. Was that repentance? Not at all. He says, I'm so sorry. Now, let's take care of this, do a little damage control, and let's go back to town so you can, quote, honor me before the people. What was Saul concerned with? Damage control. All right? David was the guy uh, who saw a woman bathing next door and uh, lusted after her, came and, uh, oh, sorry, back up. David was a guy who had his guard down. 
should have gone off to war. In the spring of the year, it says, when the kings go off to war, David stayed home and chilled, right? Had his guard down. Sent Joab and the, and the rest of the soldiers off to war, and David stays home and chilled. While he's home chilling, he happens to notice Bathsheba next door, right? He says, whoa, all right. And next thing you know, uh, he sends for Bathsheba. Next thing you know, she's pregnant, right? Now David's got a problem on his hand. David sends, but David wants to figure out the problem. Uh, He wants to solve the problem. So he solves the problem by sending for her husband to come back from the battlefield. Makes up this big song and dance. Hey, how's it going out there? Good. Yeah, you know, that's awesome. Tell you what, why don't you go uh, home to be with your wife? The guy's been away for a long time, right? We know what's going to happen. Hey, why don't you go home, uh, spend the weekend with your wife? And, and, and then that way, you know, a couple months later when she starts to show, we got a good alibi. Fair enough? And uh, so the guy's like too honorable to go home to be his, with his wife. Dave brings it back the next time. What's, what's wrong with you, man? Well, you know, I'm j- I just, I can't stand the thought of going home and, and being with my wife while all my uh, peers are out fighting for the Lord. I mean, this guy was that honorable. So David literally writes a note, seals it in an envelope, and says, put this guy in the front line so he's killed. He hands this to this guy that says to this guy, give it to the general. He goes and gives it to Joab the general. Joab the general opens it up and says, put Uriah the Hittite in the, in the front line and then everybody else draw back. It's exactly what he did. Uriah the Hittite died. Right? David was sloppy and slothful in his duties, which led to lust, which led to adultery, which led to uh, cover-up, which led to murder. That's a review of the sin. Saul sort of obeyed. Right? Who sinned greater? David or Saul? By our standards. Come on. Common sense. David. Not a trick question. I do ask trick questions. That was not one. Right? David. Right? Who is referred to in the scripture as the man after God's own heart? David. Who goes down in history as a loser king of Israel? Saul. Probably is in heaven. That's a whole other story, but barely. Why is David called the man after God's own heart after doing something so incredibly off the scales wicked? Because when he was confronted by his sin, by Nathan the prophet, he broke. It's not the sin. It's the response to the sin. David knew how to repent. And he did it. He wrote about it in the Psalms. David knew how to repent. Saul is trying to do damage control. There's a huge difference. These people, they're, they're, they're bent on backsliding because they refuse to repent. Let that not be said of us. Verse 8, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not 
come with terror. And so Adma and Zebulun, they were uh, regions around Sodom and Gomorrah that were completely destroyed. And so what God's saying here is, I'm making a distinction between you and, and those places that I completely destroy. I'm going to discipline you, but I'm not going to completely destroy you. He's going he's to have some mercy. He goes on, they shall walk after the Lord. He will roar like a lion when he roars. And this, then his sons shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like a bird from Egypt, like a dove from the land of Assyria. And I will let them dwell in their houses, says the Lord. And so he points to a future gathering of, God, uh, of, of God's people. Um, he says, you know, they're, they're going to they're gonna dwell. They're going to they're gonna come and they're going to regather. And again, this, this speaks to, at that time, uh, far into the future. We know that they're re, they've been regathering. Uh, since 1948 officially and so um, that's, that's being fulfilled as we speak. Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Judah, house of Israel with deceit but Judah still walks with God even with the, fall, with the Holy One who is faithful. And so Judah uh, the southern kingdom still had a remnant of, of good uh, and their, their mercy was extended. That's chapter 11. Everybody go, okay so far? Chapter 12, Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. So here's the thing. He's, again, I, I said, uh, you know, we're going back, and now we're, we're going to learn some lessons of, of, the, of the Jewish people here. going to move into Jacob here in a minute. But again, Ephraim is relying on the Assyrians. Ephraim is relying on the strength of their neighbors. They're not looking to God. They're, they're in trouble for sure, and they're, they're going to reap the consequences of their sin. But they're not relying on, on God. They're relying on the, their neighbors, the, the Egyptians, the Assyrians. And paradoxically, the Assyrians are the, are the ones that are going to capture them. He says, the Lord, brings a, Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. Now he goes back and uses this word Jacob. Okay? Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Jacob was the patriarch of the 12 tribes, and he's the one whose name was changed to Israel. He brings a punish, uh, and the Lord brings a charge against Judah, will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed and wept. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. So what's God telling us through these, through these verses? This is really a bit of an overview of Jacob's life, in a sense. And so God's going back to another history lesson. God loves to use Old Testament history to teach his people, then and now, I believe. So this time, he's going back to history lesson, the person of Jacob. Now, if you recall, uh, and again, we all have different levels of biblical background, so that's fine. Um, but Jacob was a guy who was a master manipulator, uh, and he was good at it. His name literally meant heel catcher, because when he came out, he was, he was a twin. His brother Esau came out first, and when uh, Esau came out, the second brother is literally holding on to his heel, as he's coming out, right? So it's, it's a picture, and his name reflected that, but it was a picture of Jacob's life of being a master manipulator. 
He was a very good manipulator. He manipulated his brother. He manipulated his father-in-law. He was, he was good at it. And so, you know, he, uh, you may remember the story that uh, his father, Isaac, uh, sort of had a favoritism towards his, his brother Esau. His mother had a favoritism towards uh, Jacob himself. And you know the story, Jake, uh, Israel, or Isaac said, hey, listen, Esau, I want you to go out and get me some of that stew, right? Or get some of that game that you always make and come back and I'm going to bless you, which in that, in that time, in that, that context, that was a big deal. He was going to establish Esau as the superior brother, which meant all of his descendants would have uh, preeminence spiritually. They'd have, a, they'd have a higher blessing from God, all of that. And so Rebecca uh, overheard this, and she told Jacob, hey, your brother's out hunting. Why don't you wear his clothes and act like him? Because Isaac by this time is, is blind. Why don't you go outside and dress up like your brother so you smell like him and um, come in, and, and that way you can deceive y- your dad. And... Um, uh, and thereby get the blessing, right? Good family dynamics, don't you think? These are our spiritual forefathers we're talking about, right? Thank God that God is God. And, uh, you know, anyway. So, sure enough, it works. This Isaac pours out this beautiful prophetic blessing on, the, on Jacob and his descendants, all foreordained by God. That's a whole other story. But anyway, he does that. What do you think? Esau is a guy with a little bit of a temper. What's going to happen when Esau finds it? When Esau comes in, he says, hey, dad, just got your stew, or I got your, 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 uh, your game. I'm ready for you to bless me. He's like, wait a minute, I already did bless you. No, that was Jacob. What did Esau do? We have an English, we have a modern English translation. He flipped out, right? He went berserk. He went crazy. He said, I'm going to kill that guy. So what do you do if you're Jacob? You're a master manipulator. You kind of, what do you do? You skedaddle, right? You run. And so sure enough, uh, he runs. He winds up uh, going uh, to, to the land of Syria, uh, meets up with uh, uh, another family there, winds up marrying Two, uh, meets up with a guy, Laban, marries two of his daughters, uh, manipulates him for, I think, 20 years. And then he's coming back now with all of his great riches that he's acquired while he's been manipulating his father-in-law. And to be fair, his father-in-law manipulated him too. And so it was pretty even score, but Jacob won the game. Anyway, Jacob comes back with his wives now. By this time, uh, is, is 12 sons and one daughter. And tons of wealth demonstrated by his great flocks and herds. And he comes back, and as he comes back, he's going to come back home. And sooner or later, you did that, even though it's been 20 years, who are you going to, what are you worried about? Facing your brother, who the last time you talked to him, he said, I'm going to kill that man, right? I'm going to kill that man is generally the kind of thing you don't forget, right? And so 20 years later, he comes back, and right before he goes to meet Esau, a very interesting thing happens. Some man, we know it to be Jesus, a a pre-incarnate Jesus uh, by the descriptions throughout the Scripture. He's referred to as an angel, capital A. Uh, In some places, he's referred to as a man, capital M, but it's, it's, it's Jesus. And when he comes back home after running from his brother, manipulating his father-in-law for 20 years, 
uh, getting a family, uh, all that. This man wrestles with him, says, all night. And the man is Jesus wrestling with Jacob. And there's a great picture in all this, and that's why I tell you this whole story. In the struggle, Jesus, the man, will say, Jesus, tells Jacob, hey, let me go. Let me go now. The, it's starting to get daybreak. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me, uh, until you bless me, right? Pretty bold to talk to Jesus like that, but that's Jacob. He's pretty bold. He said, I won't let you go until you bless me. And so Jesus reached down and touched his hip, right, the hip socket, and dislocated his hip. And then he said, all right, I bless you. And at that point, that's when he says, I changed your name to Israel. Jacob means heel catcher. Israel means governed by God. You're going to go from manipulator to now being governed by God. But there's a key element to that. It's a dislocated hip. And it's a picture for us. And this is why I go through this whole, thank you for bearing with me. This is why I go through this whole long story. We have a choice to be governed by God or to walk in our own strength. It actually was a blessing. Jacob said, I want you to bless me. And he blessed him by dislocating his hip. You get the idea? The dislocated hip was a blessing to Jacob. Jacob could now no longer operate in his own strength. Jacob could now no longer operate in his own strength. And honestly, our choice today as Christians is we can depend on God or we can depend on me. And sometimes our biggest danger is me is pretty capable. I can, you know, I, I, I've told you before, you know, one of my, I feel like I'm kind of one of these can-do kind of guys, right? Anybody feel like you're a can-do kind of person, right? Yeah. And so sometimes we do that and we're like, I could get this done. And that's, that can sometimes be our biggest uh, risk. And so the point in all this reminder of the nation of the of the Jacob story was you know according to his deeds is what he's gonna, how he's going to get recompensed Jacob took his brother by the heel in the womb and yet later in life he struggled with God he struggled and he prevailed he prevailed because he was he was blessed and he was able to depend on God he wept and he sought favor from him and he found God there at Bethel and so we need to depend on the Lord more than on our own strength. A cunning Canaanite, verse 7, deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. And so, you know, Jacob, before Jacob got his hip dislocated, he was like a cunning Canaanite. He was, again, he was effective. He was successful. Sometimes we can go through life being successful. There's a great story of Asa in uh, 2 Chronicles, uh, I believe chapter 15, 16. Uh, Asa was a, a godly king, but he relied on his own uh, negotiating skills to fight off. He was a king in the southern kingdom of Judah to fight off the northern king, uh, Baasha of Israel. He did it by manipulating with, I believe it was Syria that had another deal going. And so he was able to work all these things, right? He was completely successful. It worked. 
But the prophet then later came and rebuked him. He says, what you've done is not right. Sometimes we look to our metric of success as whether something is right or wrong. And let me just tell you, that is fundamentally not, not accurate. We need to look at what does God say as a measure of success. And so Jacob was like a cunning Canaanite. He was able to, you know, have some deceitful scales, and he got rich as a result of it. He said, I found wealth for myself in all my labors. And you know what? There's no iniquity in me. Uh, but he was totally self-sufficient. But I am the Lord your God, he says. Ever since the land of Egypt, I will again make you dwell in tents. As in the days of the appointed feasts, I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls in Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in, in the furrows of the field. And so, you know, Jacob's been doing his thing. You know, sometimes when we depend on our own strength, we're doing our own thing. But God is still God, and God is still all-knowing. And God has been God all along. He sees their sin. They won't escape their sin, even though they've been warned by the prophets. Verse 12, Jacob fled to the country of Syria. That's where he ran from Esau and wound up uh, with his father-in-law. He served for a spouse. He served uh, 14 years for, for two wives. And for a wife, he tended sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt. And by a prophet, he was preserved. Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his reproach upon him. So the nation of Israel at this time, as well as us today, we can try to succeed according to the ways of Jacob, you know, running from Esau, running to Syria, trying to manipulate for, uh, you know, what you want, try to manipulate for some riches, or we can do it by surrendering to God. The same choice that Jacob had, the same choice that the nation of Israel had, the same choice we have. We can surrender to the Lord, or we can do our own thing. And even as Christians, I believe it's possible to be on our way to heaven, right? We know that we're a sinner. We know that Christ died for us, and that fixes our sin problem, right? We know that we've accepted Jesus uh, as the author and finisher of our faith. We've asked him to come into our hearts. We, we receive the salvation that God has offered. We're on our way to heaven. But even in that, right, don't we have this tendency sometimes to fall back on our Jacob ways? And so we've got to guard against that. Chapter 13. When Ephraim spoke, trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal worship, he died. Now they sin more and more and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the man who sacrifice let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown from a threshing floor and like smoke from the chimney. And so, you know, when Ephraim began to exalt themselves, that's when they got in trouble. They thought they knew better than God. You ever thought you knew better than God? God says, do, God says, do this. And you say, you know, that just doesn't seem logical. I think I'll do this. You ever try that? Sometimes. It says now they sin more and more to the point of their love for idols. And as a result, you know what? They're going to be like the dew that just kind of blows off. 
they're going to be like the chaff that blows away. They're going to be like the smoke that uh, sort of dissipates and vanishes into nothing. Yet I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. Ever since you were a child, he would say. Again, speaking like he's talking to a prodigal child. Ever since the land of Egypt. And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. I knew you in the wilderness, in the land of great drought. When they had pasture, they were filled. There, they were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. Again, if I could say this as passionately as I can. Letting your guard down was David's first mistake, and it's usually our first mistake. Bad things happen when we let our guard down. Bad things happen when we forget God. He said, so I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. And so they will be disciplined, right? Uh, even when uh, we forget God, he never forgets us. He's always, he's always aware and he's always watching. Not like he's looking to spank us, okay? Not like he wants to hurt us. Not like he wants to inflict any kind of judgment, right? He wants to exercise his love toward us, right? In the midst of, and, and again, sometimes we've got to keep perspective in, in these, these sort of readings, Right? But the reality is, God desires intimate fellowship with you individually and with me individually. God desires fellowship with us. God wants to be our best friend. God has made all things possible to be our best friend. He just wants us to not forget Him. He wants us to want the same thing, right? Don't we understand human relationships, right? I mean, you know, love that's not reciprocated is painful. Painful. And so God is just pouring his heart out. And because God is God, and we're sinful flesh, right, God is calling us out. And sometimes God calls us out by loving discipline, right? We see that throughout the Scripture. We see it in, in, in the human realm, right? Parents sometimes need to discipline their children. is because they... They hate them? No, it's because they love them. And that's what God is speaking of here. O Israel, he says, verse 9, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges, to whom you said, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. So again, another history lesson, right? Remember after the time of the judges? The nation of Israel said, we want a king, right? We want to demand our own way. And, and again, again, I just keep, uh, I keep coming back to how, how common or how, how uh, what's the word, how unchanging human nature is, right? The nation of Israel, they demanded their own way. A young child demands his own way, right? A grown-up just does it a little more veiled, right? But... We're very capable of demanding our own way, are we not? Yeah, we are. We are. These guys, they're demanding their own way. They thought they knew better than God.
they demanded a king. So God said, you guys aren't going to like this when you have a king because God was, God was their king, but they wanted a human king. And God says, uh, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. They kept demanding a king. God said, okay, I'll give you King Saul. And King Saul was not good for the nation. But sometimes God gives us what we ask. If we demand our own way, here's, the, here's another scary thing. There's lots of scary things in this life. <laughs> One scary thing is if you demand your own way, there's a good chance God will let you have it. So you can see what that feels like. They demanded idolatry. Man, we just want to love our man-made idols. We want to we carve out a little bale thing, put it on our fireplace mantle, and worship that thing. Whatever. We want to worship a, a Chemosh. We want to worship a Molech. We want to do all the, basically because we want to do all the garbage that's associated with that, that worship, right? And we want to worship these things. And God, you know, in a sense, they, they demanded that. They insisted on that. And even the southern kingdom of Judah insisted on that, right? That's where God sent them. Babylon. What's like the world headquarters and all the history of pagan idolatry? Babylon. And it's almost like God needed to send them to Babylon to see what it's like to live out that thing that they've insisted that they want. And you know, it's interesting, if you look up at the nation of Israel historically, after that time of Babylon, they spent 70 years in Babylon, right? Now, after that 70 years, they came back to, uh, they came back to the promised land. They resettled all that. We know that during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and, and even up into the time of Jesus and, and beyond. They never really struggled with pagan idolatry again. Well, they struggled with plenty of things, but pagan idol worship was not one of them, right? Sometimes God will let you have that thing you think you really want. You've got to have it. 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 Anybody ever felt like this? It's just me. You've got to have it. And then God lets you have it, and you're like, hmm. It's either like not what it's cracked up to be or worse, Right? David had to have Bathsheba. That was worse, right? Sometimes it's just, you know, we got to have a new set of golf clubs. Okay, fine, God will let you have it. And then you think, well, that was kind of a waste, <laughs> right? But some things have bigger consequences, right? And so, you know, that's how it plays out. So they got their king, but it wasn't quite what they bargained for. The iniquity of, verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He's an unwise son. For he should not stay long where children are born. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be in your plagues. I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. So again, here you see a beautiful picture of the heart of God in the midst of all this crazy sin. Sin leaves us with consequences whether we like it or not. Like he says, like birth pangs, right? You know, if any of you ladies, if you've been through childbirth, right? Do you decide when the birth pains come? Tell you what, I'm sorry, we're having dinner right now. <laughs> right? Do you, I don't, I don't, I've witnessed it a few times, but I've not experienced it, but I don't think it works that way, right? It comes when it comes, right? The consequence of sin comes when it comes, right? God ordains that, and God decides all that. But even in that, look at this. God says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. 
Consider that. Our sin deserves everything imaginable that God would want to inflict on us. And what God inflicts on us is He ransoms us from all of that. He buys us back from our sin and gives us the opportunity to be one of His children, to be in the fold, if you will. And He gives us all that opportunity and He even overcomes death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. This uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul uh, quotes from uh, sort of a paraphrase of this. Uh, but it's the idea that's carried on. Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from their wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry and his fountains shall, become, shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Samaria is held guilty for she has rebelled against her God. Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. So there will be terrible consequences to be sure. punishment will come but God's grace is there for the individuals chapter 14 I want you to see this as the great culmination you know I think of this I think of this chapter as kind of like uh, if you ever read through the book of Job right the book of Job is a lot of work to read through first couple chapters you know you got this narrative you know God is sort of setting the stage for us and then after that Job's friends come and there's like this this dialogue of bad theology between Job and his friends and his friends talk bad theology and Job responds and then his friends talk more bad theology and Job responds sometimes with good sometimes with bad sometimes out of frustration and you know it's super hard and confusing and and um, and it's just it's just chapters and chapters and chapters seems like it goes on forever and then at the end God breaks the silence and God speaks and you're like oh okay this book has now been redeemed <laughs> right it's like God God allows me to see the big picture and I think Hosea is another book like that right chapter 14 really gives us sort of the the benefit if you will of reading through all of the difficult verses that we've read through thus far fair enough but it comes through repentance. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods, but in you the fatherless finds mercy. Boom. That's a home run. Look at this. O Israel, return to the Lord your God. I've, I said this, I think, a few weeks ago. The word return is mentioned 15 times in this, brief, in this book of Hosea. 15 times. More than any other Old Testament book except for Jeremiah. He says, return. That's a common, that's, that's, that's what he wants. He's, he's calling his children to return. I believe he calls us all to return whenever we stumble. He says, you guys have stumbled. And how did they stumble? They stumbled by three, in three ways. Number one, we will, he says, when, when we come back, God is saying, I want you to come back. And when you come back, we will offer sacrifices of our lips. 
Assyria will not save us. What was one mistake they made? They made mistakes by, by trusting in their, in their foreign neighbors, right? Trusting in the help of, their, of their, their neighboring nations. Number two, we will not ride on horses. They, re, they relied on the strength of their horses. You've got to remember, in the ancient world, a horse was like a, you know, it was kind of like a tank in a sense. It, was, it allowed you to move around and, and, and do battle. So, like, we're not going to re- rely on our own military strength. We're not going to rely on the strength of our neighbors. Nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, you are our gods. Right? They, they're going to... If they repent, if they return to the Lord and receive his mercy, for in, in you the fatherless finds mercy. If they, as they receive mercy, as they repent, as they return to the Lord, they're going to no longer trust Assyria. They're going to no longer trust their horses. And they're no, going to no longer trust their false idols. That's a great picture for us. And if I can encourage us today, and again, we're gonna, I'm going to give an opportunity to respond here in a minute. Sometimes we, resp- sometimes we rely on the world around us, don't we? Sometimes we rely on our own strength. Sometimes we rely on that thing that we worship more than God or that person that we worship more than God or that whatever it is that we worship more than God. Even that security that we worship more than God. Those are the things we rely on so often. And he's saying, just return to me. Let me take care of you. I'm going to take away all iniquity. I can receive you graciously. I can be fatherless. I, I can be mercy to the fatherless. He said, I will heal their backsliding. Now he goes into first person. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned away from him. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall f- grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. His branches shall spread, his beauty shall be like an olive tree, and his fragrance like Lebanon. Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. The scent, their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So repentance is followed by beautiful healing. He hasn't changed any. He's the same since their birth in Egypt. And even though they forgot God, He's there for him. He's there for him. You know, there's consequence of sin. We've talked about this. There's also consequence of repentance, right? Consequence of repentance, healing, blessing. Blessing beyond what we can imagine. You know, there's a funny thing about life with the Lord. I've, I've, I've learned this. I've experienced this. I've watched this over the years. When we walk in sin, there's a thing about sin. One of the most universal things about all sin is that when we deliberately sin, we underestimate the consequences. Eve thought, man, I would just like to taste that fruit. And all the world became cursed. You and I were born into sin because Eve and Adam ate a fruit. I mean, if you were there in the moment, right? Like if you could freeze frame history right there, 
and like do one of those movies like where they free, freeze frame that and then you can kind of step out of time out of the out of the out of the time and talk to him right like if you could freeze frame like like you know the serpent is here he's talking to eve and and you know all this is going on and adam's there with her and he's going to eat and all that's going on and it's all there and you could freeze frame it right there and you could interject and say hey guys don't do that i think i'm convinced that three words would come out of their mouth anybody know what they are no big deal hey man you know, if that's your religion, that's you. But, you know, for me, it's no big deal. Right? They hugely underestimated the consequence of their sin. When we walk in deliberate sin, again, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it enough. I've seen it enough. I've seen it enough. We vastly underestimate the consequence of sin. Here's the catcher. When we turn to the Lord, we vastly underestimate his blessing, the ability he has to heal. We think, man, this is an impossible situation. We underestimate his healing power. We underestimate his grace. We underestimate what his mercy feels like as we experience it. We underestimate all of these things. He says, what, what will happen? He's, I'm going to heal their backsliding. I'm going to love them freely. Can you imagine what that would be like to these people? I'm going to turn away my anger. I'm going to be like the dew to Israel, and it shall grow like a lily. I'm sure they didn't feel like a lily at this point, right? Their branches are going to spread. Their beauty is going to be like an olive tree. Their fragrance like Lebanon. The blessings of God are above and beyond what we can ask or think when we walk in, in, in those things. Ephraim shall say, what? have I to do anymore with idols I've heard and observed him I am the green cypress tree your fruit is found in me right and so when we experience God's goodness that should cause us to see our own self-directed life as unappealing right as we see the goodness of God and experience the goodness of God Romans 2 4 says it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not the manipulation of a, of a pastor. You hear this? It's not the manipulation of the pastor. It's not the smooth words of a pastor. It's not the appeal of, of your parents. It's none of that. It's the kindness of the Lord that should lead us to repentance. And when we experience that, we shouldn't... It should be so overwhelming to us that we don't want to go back. Verse 9, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, the righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. So it's a great summary statement of this book, right? We want to be considered wise or prudent, don't we? You bet we do. Then we've got to remember the ways of the Lord are right and the righteous walk in them. So I'm going to ask the guys to come up. Um, and, you know, we don't always do this. If you're, if you're relatively new, um, honestly, I don't, we don't do this very often. But um, because I, I was telling somebody earlier, I don't want to be, I don't want to ever, ever, ever feel like I'm 
pushing for something. I'm not, I don't want to push for a response to God's people. You're God's people, right? You're not my people. You're God's people. And so this is between you and God. But there are certain scriptures that, frankly, call for a response. This is one of them, right? You guys are, you know, the nation of Israel, they were messed up, right? And God, God goes through this whole thing. Man, I remember when you were a baby and I was teaching you guys how to walk and, and I love you guys and I'm pouring out my heart. Now you found yourself in this horrific place because you're depending on your own strength like Jacob. You're depending on the Assyrians. You're depending on your idols. You're messed up. And all you got to do is return, repent, come back. And when you do, you'll experience beauty beyond, beyond compare, beyond what you could even imagine. And so honestly, as I was praying about all of that, what the, what the Lord would say this morning, I really believe we, we need to give an opportunity to repent. And again, that's not a manipulation. I'm not like, I always say, I'm not working on commission, <laughs> right? If nobody needs to repent, that's awesome. But it may be that as you hear the word of the Lord, not necessarily my words, but as you hear the word of the Lord, it may be the Holy Spirit would speak to your heart. And you know that you've been walking away from God. And in that, maybe you found a little discipline. Maybe you found a little consequence. Maybe you found wasn't quite as glorious as you thought. And you need the Lord. You need to run. You need to return to Him. You need to repent. God loves to heal. God loves to restore. God loves to redeem. It's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. So let's carry that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that you're so good to us. So good that you loved us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, you didn't wait for us to get it right then. And you don't wait for us to get it right now. You're always available to us. You always draw us by your spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. And we pray that you would just do a work in our hearts. Have your way with us, Lord. Guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.